Good morning, everyone. My name is Amy, and I'm the executive pastor here at Incarnation. And uh, what a delight it is to have another snow day Sunday as we worship together. So for any kids that are still inside and not outside playing in the snow, I wanted to talk to you guys first, because we're going to look at a time from that passage that Nancy read just a minute ago, where the Apostle Paul compares God's people to a lump of bread dough. So I wanted to invite you just to think today about bread. What do you know about bread? What is its texture? What are its ingredients? How do you make it? What gives it its shape? And also, what are some other stories that you know about bread? Maybe stories from the Bible, or maybe stories from other books that you've read. Maybe you want to use some clay or some Play-Doh and actually make some little pretend loaves of bread. Maybe you want to draw some bread. Or maybe you want to do something that my kids like to do and pull a favorite family cookbook off the shelf and find a recipe for bread that you wanna make with your family later today. And I actually brought my favorite bread cookbook to show you guys. Uh, it's very old and very simple. And there's actually a woman on the back who's making bread. She's making tortillas, which is a kind of flatbread. And if you look inside this cookbook, it's really sad, but every page is just covered in like molasses and oil stains and there's wheat flour stuck to the pages and some of the pages are glued together because that's actually how you make glue. Uh, but for the parents who are listening on this call, today's sermon is going to be about that passage from 1 Corinthians 5. So it's going to be talking about sexual immorality. So you may want to invite your kids to ponder bread in another room. Up to you guys. Well, when I was in middle school in seventh grade, I had an English teacher who introduced a unit on fairy tales. So we looked at the, the plot and the characters and kind of the story arc that fairy tales followed. And this whole unit of study culminated in what was called the Charming Awards named for Prince Charming, and uh, each Charming Award actually had a statue, so almost like the middle school version of the Dundee Awards. And I desperately wanted a Charming Award, and the way that you got them was by writing an original fairy tale. But because I wanted one of these so bad, I decided I'm going to go for something really ambitious. I'm not just going to write one fairy tale. I'm going to write like every fairy tale there ever was. So I wrote a story about a teenager who's actually stuck in a book of fairy tales and keeps sort of drifting from one to another and getting tangled up in all these plot lines. And I don't remember much now about this story, but the one thing that I do really vividly remember is what a massive pain it was to write. Because it turns out it's really hard to write a character and to imagine what they might say or do when you're not really sure what story they're a part of, when there's not just one cohesive story where they belong. And I think that actually gets at something that's happening in Corinth. I think the Christians at Corinth have forgotten what story they're a part of. They've kind of lost the plot line and they've definitely lost their place in it. And their arrogance and their sexual immorality 
And all the things that they're tolerating in their midst show that they don't really understand the role that they're to play in this story. And that's what Paul is trying to help them do. Well, in the opening verses of chapter five, which Nancy read just a minute ago, we learned that a member of the Corinthian church has been committing sexual immorality. He's committing incest. He's actually having sex with his stepmother. And Paul says that this kind of sexual immorality is not even tolerated among the pagans, which means it's really bad because the Greco-Roman culture of Corinth was extremely sexually permissive. It was really common for men, in addition to their wives, to have mistresses and concubines and prostitutes. They would use slaves and even children for sexual gratification. And some of this was consensual in whatever that meant back then, but a lot of it was also really exploitative. It was rooted in these inequalities of power and class and status. So in case you ever wonder why sexual immorality is up at the top of those lists of stuff not to do that Paul has, or why it comes up so often in his letters in the New Testament, even though Jesus sort of barely touched it. This is why. It's not because Paul is this like pearl-clutching prude. And it's not because Paul is just obsessed with what people do in their bedrooms. It's because sexuality and sexual permissiveness was just so pervasive in the world that Paul was ministering in, in the world that these Gentile converts were coming out of and trying to live faithfully in. This was a real area of struggle for Gentile converts to the faith. And it touched on so much of their lives, on their bodies, on their relationships, on their households, and even the ways they participated in the local economy. It's just a big deal. But even Corinth had its sexual limits, the lines that it didn't cross. And this incest in the church crossed that limit. It crossed the line. And it also seems like it's pretty public because somehow news of this incest has reached Paul's ears, even though he's writing all the way from Corinth. So we know that this sexual sin that he's talking about is egregious by any standard. It's very public. And then the rest of the chapter makes clear to us that it's also affecting the life of the whole community. And it's that life of the whole community that Paul seems most interested in nurturing and in protecting and correcting in this chapter. He actually doesn't really address the individual who has committed this sin. And he doesn't really talk about the act of sexual immorality itself. He doesn't even bother to tell us precisely why sleeping with your stepmother is wrong. Although I think we can assume that Paul assumes that we just agree on this one. He doesn't lay out a framework here for a biblical sexual ethic, although it would be really nice if he did. What really seems to be bothering Paul here is not that a thing this bad could happen, but the way the Corinthians are acting about it, the fact that they don't seem to get 
what a big deal this is. Now, for five chapters now, throughout this book of 1 Corinthians, we have been reading every week how the Christians at Corinth are arrogant, how they are puffed up with this spiritual pride. They think that they are some kind of super Christians, that their faith has made them some kind of spiritual elite. And now it seems like that arrogance even extends to their sexuality. Paul tells them twice in this chapter that they are boasting and they are arrogant. And we're not sure whether they're arrogant in spite of the fact that there is this sin in their midst that makes them look like some kind of crazy sex cult to their neighbors, or if they're actually arrogant about this sin, if they're actually proud and boasting in this man's behavior, if maybe they see his act as evidence that they have reached some higher level of spiritual enlightenment, that now they can transcend these pagan sexual taboos and that they've reached this new state of sexual freedom. It's a really far cry from the way of the cross, the way of the suffering apostle that Paul described in so much detail in the last chapter. But whatever the source of their arrogance, Paul tells them that they are wrong. They're wrong. Instead of boasting, what he says is the entire community ought to be grieving. This grief probably means that kind of deep soul anguish that comes with repentance. It's interesting to note here that even though this sexual sin is by an individual, Paul calls for a response by the whole community. He's talking to everyone here. Paul never really views the church as this network of kind of disconnected individuals doing their own thing. Paul always treats them like a single cohesive whole. They're a community. And so the whole community takes ownership for one another, for what they do, for how they live. And in this case, they are called to take ownership of the horrific actions of this one member. Collectively, they're called to repent. Collectively, they're called to grieve. Collectively, they're called to act, to restore their community and to restore him. And this is still what we expect churches to do when there are big sexual scandals that erupt in their midst. We expect them to own it to grieve and to repent and to set things right. Well, the action that Paul recommends here to set things right is pretty strongly worded. He recommends disassociating from this man. And the language he uses is this, deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. The Corinthians are to send this man back out from the safety and the intimacy and the fellowship of this community, back into the world, the dominion of Satan, where sin and oppression and greed and evil still reign. Toward the end of the chapter, Paul broadens this course of action, and he recommends that any Christian that is sexually immoral or greedy or idolatrous or swindling 
is not to share in the communal meals of this church. Now, it's clear from verse 5 that the purpose of this kind of cutting off is not punitive. It's meant to be restorative. It's for the man's salvation. And it's also clear that Paul is not at all concerned about the church being contaminated by the world. He's not worried about the culture they live in in Corinth and about that seeping in and contaminating the church. He's worried about the church being contaminated from within by the arrogance and the lack of repentance of its people. And the other thing that I think is quite clear here is that Paul is making kind of an ad hoc recommendation for this particular and highly unusual situation. I think it's hard to take from this one passage, especially in light of the whole of the New Testament, any sort of sweeping broader rules about when to excommunicate people and how to do church discipline today. But with all those considerations aside, Paul is still making something very clear. He's saying that inside this community and around this table, we are sharing in something new, in this new life of the spirit. We are living as this prophetic countercultural community, as this alternate society in a world full of idolatry and sexual brokenness and greed. And he's clear that we need to protect the goodness and the integrity and the mission and witness of this fellowship by taking responsibility for one another. This is the story that the Corinthians are a part of. This is the story they have to learn to live inside of with their sexual selves, with their bodies. And the way Paul really anchors this story for them is in that section of this chapter where he talks about the Passover. So let me read verses six through eight again. He says, your boasting is not good. Do you know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So Paul here connects removing that sinning brother to removing all the leaven in the home, this ritual that the Jewish people did every year in preparation for the Passover as part of the festival of unleavened bread, what Eva Elizabeth read about uh, earlier. Now, leaven in this case wasn't like a little packet of yeast. It was actually something that a lot of us have become very familiar with during this pandemic. It was more like a sourdough starter. So they would keep back a little bit of the dough from every loaf that they made. They would let it ferment and they would add it to the next loaf they made and so on and so on. So that every single batch of dough that they made had a little bit of that original leaven in it. So it's this picture of how sin could ferment and spread and contaminate through all the bread. 
And we can be sure that this kind of contamination is happening at Corinth. This church is fermented through and through with arrogance, with sexual license. But then once a year at the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Jewish people would start over. They would toss out that fermented starter and they would bake a fresh unleavened batch of bread. And that represented their status as these unleavened, uncontaminated, fresh, new, holy people of God. This is the same day that they would kill the Passover lamb that marked them as God's rescued people. And then Paul takes this leaven analogy further. He's not just talking anymore about removing this man from their community, but about removing all the leaven of malice and evil to live as a new lump of unleavened bread, this lump of sincerity and truth. He's calling them to this new way of life as God's lump, God's holy and nourishing bread in the world. And when they do that, their whole lives become a celebration of the festival of unleavened bread, a celebration of their new identity in God. Now, right here, it starts to sound like Paul is putting heavy burdens on us. It starts to sound like he's saying, we have to get rid of all of our leaven in order to become God's unleavened bread, God's people. But it's at this point where Paul swoops in with this word of grace. He says, you really are unleavened because Christ, our Passover lamb, has already been sacrificed. You really are unleavened. You've already received the grace and the mercy of God in the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. You are already God's people. You are already God's new bread. Paul is pouring out grace and he's simply telling the people of Corinth to become what they already are. Now in chapter six, which David is going to preach for us next week, Paul does something really similar. Again, he's going to talk about sexuality and idolatry and greed. And again, he's going to anchor that and everything that he's calling the Corinthians to in who they already really are in Christ. He'll tell them, you really are already members of Christ's body. You really are already a temple of the Holy Spirit. You really are already washed and sanctified and justified. His invitation to them again and again is to become what they already are, to live in the reality of the grace that God has already given them, not to pull themselves up by their bootstraps, but to fall back into the grace of God. This is what I meant when I talked about Paul helping them find their place in this story. Paul reminds them of what has come before, of what God has already done. He's delivered them. He's made them his people. He has cleansed them. And why? So that they can transcend spiritual 
boundaries and become these sexual, spiritual elites so that they can lord over other people in the community with their arrogance and their boasting? No. So that the people of Corinth can be God's bread in the world, nourishing and feeding. So they can be that prophetic counterculture I talked about a minute ago, that new kind of community that's gathered around the table, taking its whole life from God's spirit, living by a different ethic and inviting other people to come and take a seat. You may have noticed when we read this text, some familiar words, sort of slightly paraphrased from the way we're used to hearing them. Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast. And until Lent, we say, Alleluia. This passage is part of our Eucharist liturgy, the words that we hear when we celebrate communion together. The priest says these words as she lifts the bread and breaks it. Now, before this morning, did you know that that part of the liturgy came from the middle of a text about a guy who is having sex with his stepmother? But it does. Christ's body is broken for the people of Corinth and for you and me right here at this moment of our most egregious and acute sexual shame and sexual need and sexual brokenness. And Christ's broken body has already made us God's new bread. It's already made us temples of the Holy Spirit. It has already made us his washed and sanctified and justified people. What a powerful invitation we have each week when we come to the table to receive God's grace anew to set aside our leaven anew, to lay down whatever sexual sins and burdens we carry, whatever arrogance we're carrying anew, and to become who we really are as we come to the table. This is our story. Amen. <laughs>